This is My Rank Edges Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Gemma Pearl, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, Agriculture Victoria's Graham Anderson and I talk to Neville Nichols about climate change science and more specifically, how we know that the greenhouse gases are warming the world. At first, it might seem that our understanding of these processes is quite new, but it actually isn't. John Tyndall is one of my favourite scientists in, um, uh, and in 1859, I think it was, he gave a demonstration at the Royal Institute in England and he, he demonstrated that carbon dioxide and water vapour were what we now call greenhouse gases. He didn't call them greenhouse gases, but he pointed out that unlike oxygen and nitrogen, they both absorb and emit what we call long wave radiation now. He, he called it heat energy. And he wrote these beautiful books. He was a wonderful experimentalist. What they'd noticed was, yet yeah, we get energy from the sun during the day and that warms up the Earth's surface. But at night, when the sun sets, that heat that uh, the land's absorbed during the day, it should just radiate back out to space. And what they were noticing then, um, pretty clever cookies, these physicists, they just noticed that they said, you know what, um, it should actually be by our calculations around 30 degrees cooler every morning. That Most of that heat should just radiate straight out back to space, but it's not. It's still there. Um, what's trapping that heat and preventing it from all from escaping? So they started a bit of a, an experiment, which was basically capturing the gases in our atmosphere and passing heat radiation through it in a chamber to see which of these gases is trapping heat. And so one of the things they get, well, 98% of the atmosphere is just nitrogen gas and oxygen. So that those two make up 98% of the atmosphere. And uh, they pass the heat radiation through those two and the heat slips straight through. So they said, well, if our atmosphere was just nitrogen gas or oxygen gas, um, we would freeze every night. So this other this other percentage of gases, he called them the impurities at the time. Let's start testing them and started trying to pass the gas, the heat through those gases, and they trapped all of the heat. They wouldn't let the heat through. And so that was basically the discovery of greenhouse gases. And this is back in the 1850s. And so those laws of physics, they hold true to this day. And basically that's the natural greenhouse effect that there's there's gases in the atmosphere that trap some of that, that heat and uh, keep keep our temperature the way it is. They've been proven and proven and proven, time confirmed time and time and time again. Yeah. And again, there are some wonderful characters in the history of climate change, as there are in the, the study of natural climate variations as well. Wonderful characters who went out on a limb and tried to work out what was going on and but yeah the Tyndall's observations and his experiments yeah you can still you can find people duplicating Tyndall's experiments now using modern equipment but doing exactly the same thing that he he did so yeah so yeah carbon dioxide to greenhouse gas water vapor is a greenhouse gas methane to a greenhouse gas oxygen and nitrogen aren't (laughs) Now, if I'm correct, Swedish chemist Svente Harenius was the first person to make the link between changes in greenhouse gases and changes in temperature. Tyndall, of course, never thought that 
humans would ever affect the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. He thought we couldn't, we we're too puny to, to do that. But he, he thought, and he says in his book, that these variations in the constituents in the atmosphere might explain all of the variations in climate that the geologists were just starting to, to identify uh, past variations like, um, on the scale of the dinosaurs type of time frame. Now, that's wrong. The primary determinant really is sort of probably orbital variations, but the greenhouse effect can amplify these variations. And so it's a partial explanation, but wasn't quite as dramatic as Tyndall thought. But yeah, he never thought. And Arrhenius is, I think, the first person who thought, yeah, humans are probably starting to affect it on sufficiently wide, large amounts to actually have an effect. But it's still, it's a very brave forecast. <laughs> so uh, back in eighteen ninety six. So what sort of happened with what is there now eight billion humans on the planet, and we've used a lot of fossil fuels, and the extra emissions of some of those gases that are put into the atmosphere actually mean that there's more heat getting trapped. And while the sun still sends us similar amount of energy, it, it, it's got a eleven year solar cycle and stuff. But basically, what's happening is. Um, a bit more of that heat is being trapped in our atmosphere. And what they're sort of measuring is that there's sort of increased warming in our lower atmosphere. And when you head out to our outer atmosphere, it's actually um, getting cooler out there. So we're actually changing the ratio of energy that's leaving the system. Then another guy called Callender in the 1930s started doing the same thing. And he was the first person who really collected enough temperature data to realise that the, the world was warm, starting to warm a little bit. And he, again, attributed to fossil fuel burning. And he he received, he was attacked mercilessly by my predecessors as meteorologists. They, they Again, they just didn't believe this was feasible. So then he kept on going at it. And then people in the 40s and 50s, 60s, repeated his calculations and and confirmed that it was right as we got better and better understanding of of how radiation is transferred in the atmosphere um, yeah people confirmed all this stuff that had been going on for a hundred years but shows how slow science can be at times it's people used to tell me that um, climate change climate was a, a new science and i used to say oh, probably the second oldest science we've ever had after medicine, after the, um, the first predecessor, probably the first thing he tried to do was work out how to break, how to how to fix his broken arm. But after that, he started to worry: is there enough rain that will get enough antelope coming past this year? But uh, so I think climate science has been around a long time. Modern climate science probably dates from the start of the nineteenth century as well. It's it's an old science, and we some I sometimes feel that all I'm doing is trying to fill in some of the gaps that uh, the giants that that, predecess that my predecessors already had worked out. Graham has a great way to describe what is happening in the atmosphere, and one we can all relate to. I use the analogy, Gemma. Imagine two cars parked on a sunny day; both of the dashboards are warming up. And then those dashboards are generating sort of uh, radiating off heat. Um, if you imagine one of the cars got the windows down and one of the cars has the windows up, when you go to the end of the day to jump in one of those cars, one will be a lot hotter than the other. 
And why is that? That's right. Yeah. So both those cars are getting the same energy from the sun, the same amount of energy hits their dashboard, but the car with the windows up has, has really changed the ratio to, of how that heat can leave the car. So adding more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere is just basically winding, like winding up the windows. We're just sl- um, slowing down the, the, the rate of, that that heat can leave. And that means that we start to see, you know, increasing temperatures. And I guess that's what's largely been observed around the world. In most places, we've seen over the last, especially last 50 and 100 years, increasing temperatures. 90% of that heat's gone into the oceans. But that's sort of trend and, and we're at the early phases of that. So the whole story of climate change is, well, if, you, if, you, uh, if we keep adding more emissions, then we're really going to start to increase the amount of heat but it also then starts to have questions into well how does that affect our longer term variability we know what good old-fashioned variability and what our rainfall records have done in the past but how might that change you know, in a world that's a lot warmer so that's where a lot of the climate change modeling sort of comes in to try and look at what happens with that and certainly when you look at the last 50 years and changes in temperatures and whether for, for the the you know the the huge amount of science that's being done on it sort of showing that you can only replicate the increases in temperatures when you include um, increasing the greenhouse gases in the climate models. So there's been a lot of work done on that, and I guess that's why there's all this discussion and effort now going into making sure we um, we choose a low emissions future. The bit about the climate change stuff is there's areas where there's high confidence, such as around that extra trapping of heat, so the future is going to be warmer. 90% of that heat's going into the oceans, but it's actually, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty warm on land as well. We know too about how the planet works is that if you warm up the whole planet, basically the tropics is the hottest part of the planet, the tropics along the equator. So if you warm everything up, the tropics expands either side of the equator and it sort of nudges weather patterns closer towards the poles. So from Southern Australia's point of view, if, if you warm up the world, Basically, you know, the westerlies that bring all of our sort of southwesterly and cold frontal weather along southern Australia, that all just gets nudged, you know, 500 kilometres to the south for every certain amount of warming. So that's just the physics of how the planet and the weather systems work. So a lot of the climate change models, they're confident that we're going to have increased heat, confident that it shifts weather patterns polewards. We're confident that it actually, when you warm up the atmosphere, it means it rains heavier, so it increases rainfall intensity. But there's also lots of things that the climate change models aren't sure about, and uh, that's why there's a range of models in terms of some places, you know, predict a much, much greater amount of drying than others. Some predict greater heat extremes than others, and some really don't tell us a lot about what will happen to core modes of variability, such as the the El Nino Southern Oscillation and how the Indian Ocean pattern might change. With all that extra heat in the ocean, what effect might that have on variability? I was saying earlier, 90% of the heat's being absorbed in our oceans. In, in the last sort of few decades, there's been increasing amount of heat entering the Indian Ocean and, and warming sort of out in the, the sort of central and western areas of the Indian Ocean. And that's a bit unusual. And so what happens is if you look at the last 100 years of Indian Ocean dipole phases, which influences, you know, our wet or dry seasons, it means that if you've got areas of ocean out in the Indian Ocean that are perhaps changing so that they're to a point where they're not like they were for the last 100 years, it means that we, we 
um, need to prepare ourselves for not getting a repeat of the, the, the patterns of traditional variability. So if, if more of the heat sits over on the western part of the Indian Ocean, you know, it has real impacts on how it might influence some rainfall in future. So there's a lot of parts of climate change that aren't well understood, except that just means that, well, we've got to plan for a bigger range of variability in future. In a world of 8 billion people, we know that there's always been natural variability and the ability to have droughts and heat waves and flood events and all of that. So when you add climate change and the physics and how that affects good old-fashioned variability, it just does add and puts a lot of extra pressure on our systems in terms of um, what sort of intensity of rainfall where we've got to be able to manage for, for peak flows how we manage for bigger droughts, how do we manage for increasingly bigger heat waves and those sort of things. So so that's part of it. We're always going to have seasonal variability in there, but in a warmer world, the dynamics of some of this changes quite a bit. So uh, a lot of it will be driven by the equator. I guess part of the question, though, is that while we the, the climate change and the, the modelling and the science is confident around some areas of it, there's a lot of uncertainty there, especially about there could be some bigger surprises in there that we haven't really discovered yet. So from a practical point of view in farming, we've just got to be prepared to um, understand, you know, be good, make sure we're good at reading weather forecasts, make sure we understand what's in seasonal forecasts and then, and then taking what lessons we can out of recent trends and understanding what might be coming with climate change projections and then improving that in how we set up our farm businesses. So we can see a lot of great stuff that farmers are doing to basically get better set up to handle that uh, variability. And, you know, agriculture's done a great job growing a lot of food and fibre amidst some pretty tricky seasons in the last sort of 20 years. But when everything goes right, we can grow more food and fibre than ever. But within 12 months, we can be having an absolute, you know, horrible run of seasons or weather events. So Part of it's just trying to set up a system for how do we cope with that greater variability. Uh, oh, variability. Um, there are some things which are easy to predict, really, in, in terms of climate. There are some things which are a bit sus and some things which we really just don't know. I really don't know how El Nino and La Nina are going to change. There's been a lot of work over... 20 or 30 years trying to work out this and people have come up with ideas. But if you look critically at it, it's really difficult to get anything, a strong idea of, of how it might change. So I think we're, we're really still, still working on that. It's a work in progress and I'm hoping my younger colleagues will continue their great work and we'll get a, a better idea. Because that's crucial for the farmers. If, if suddenly the El Nino gets worse than um, or, or become more frequent. Yeah, that, that's something we need to know about and, and you're, yeah, the farmers need to know. Unfortunately, I'm not sure we can say that very confidently as yet. One thing we can say with great confidence is we're going to be dealing with a warmer climate. Uh, we have no way of avoiding the warmer climate. Even if we stop burning fossil fuels now, even if we found some carbon capture and storage system that actually could work on a large enough scale. We've got, we've put so much in there, we're going to have to deal with a warmer climate. What effect does that have? Well, it affects animals, it affects people, uh, it presumably affects plants as well. Not as much as rainfall, which is the other thing which is more problematic. 
there are parts of a, the world where the models show extremely are extremely confident that it's going to get drier. So most of it, the parts of the world which have Mediterranean climates, so the far west of of southwest Western Australia, southern Africa, uh, the Mediterranean itself, um, parts of America, and the models all predict a continuing drying. And we've seen that drying now for 30 or 40 years as well. So the models, which don't know the data, in a sense, that we look at to see how the world, they, they've been looking at it from a completely different perspective, but they say these areas should be drying. So I think it it's not something that we're 100% confident about, but there's a fair degree of confidence that some of those areas will get drier. Large parts of Australia, we don't know because the models don't have a strong consensus. All over inland Eastern Australia, for instance, the, the models are not coming up with the same answer. Uh, There's a wide range of answers. So I guess my two messages, and I, I've tried for 30 years to sell these two messages. On the one hand, we do know something about how the climate is changing and will continue to change. It will get warmer. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that every extreme of the climate is going to get worse. It doesn't mean that every thing that will happen with the climate is bad. So is it all bad news? There are opportunities as well as threats from climate change. So we know heat waves will get worse and that has really bad effects on um, people, particularly people of my age. So it's not great. On the other hand, cold events are going to get fewer. And that's terrific for people like me. Melbourne is not nearly as bad an environment as it used to be 30 or 40 years ago because it has warmed. Partly that's because the city's expanded and got bigger, but there's also an element of, of global warming causing that to be improved. And uh, yeah, fewer cold events, pretty good when you're trying to walk out on a cold Melbourne morning and uh, thinking, I don't need my gloves anymore because of global warming. So I guess a nuanced, uh, I just sometimes regret that there's not more of a nuanced understanding of what we know, that there are things we know with confidence, the world's going to continue to warm. There are things we suspect, like there are parts of the world that have been drying and we suspect they'll continue to dry. Rainfall overall, over the entire uh, uh, globe it probably should increase a bit not a huge amount but it should should increase there are going to be at least in some parts of the world more extreme rainfall events and thunderstorms probably but not a huge increase again so um and there are some good things about it and there are opportunities there are opportunities for farmers there are opportunities for all sorts of, of, of people to take advantage of climate change, not just to sit and think of it as a threat all the time. It's not just a threat. It's a, it has, it's a threat, but it's also an opportunity. I sometimes feel that those messages don't get through very much. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate. We greatly appreciate Neville joining us again on this episode. 
Graham and I definitely enjoyed spending time and learning from Neville's many years of experience. In the show notes, you can find more information and links to climate change content. You can also get in contact with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauges Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria and the tribe. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T's And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Oh, this bloke Dale, he's rich, he digs. He knows about the subtropical ridge. The science comes in a secret code. But he knows about the southern annular mode. Well, this SST anomaly lead us to a death cell of 1, 2, 3. The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before about SOINSSTs. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date and get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? Well, westerly wind bursts blow away all our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale, because we have to know about SOIs and SSDs. What on earth is an IOP? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get it right. Oh, SOIs and SSDs, and what on earth?